0: which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash boreyoutosleep that's try better H-E-L-P and join over 500,000 people Taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Woodlanders by Thomas Hardy. Published in 1886. It tells the story of the small village of Little Hintock. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you so much to everyone who has reached out to me during the week to send their gratitude for the podcast. Ava May, I received your lovely review on Podbean. Thank you. Liam J, thank you to your podcast review on CastBox. I'm glad I've been able to help. Super Nika Reddy and Ashley Goudemuth, Thank you for mentioning me in your stories on Instagram. Christine Rogers, your message through the website was lovely. Thank you. On Twitter, thank you Sunseeker for mentioning me in your tweet. I can confirm I am Australian, not British. And very special thank you to Jade Colum for becoming a new Patreon. This is the ultimate thank you and allows me to keep bringing out more episodes for you. If you do appreciate the podcast, a lovely way to say thank you is to leave a five-star review in your iTunes or podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. It would also be awesome if you are able to share the podcast with someone you know who may also need a good night's rest. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyytosleep.com, where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the ratings. The Woodlanders, by Thomas Hardy. Chapter 1. The Rambler Who, for old association or other reasons, should trace the forsaken coach road running almost in a meridonial line from Bristol to the south shore of England, would find himself during the latter half of his journey in the vicinity of some extensive woodlands, interspersed with apple orchards, here the trees, timber or fruit bearing, as the case may be, make the wayside hedges ragged by their drippened shade, stretching over the road with easeful horizontality, as if they found the unsubstantial air an adequate support for their limbs. At one place, where a hill is crossed, The largest of the woods shows itself bisected by the highway, as the head of the thick hair is bisected by the white line of its parting. The spot is lonely. The physiognomy of a deserted highway expresses solitude to a degree that is not reached by more dales or downs, and bespeaks a tomb-like stillness, more emphatic than that of glades and pools. The contrast of what is with what might be probably accounts for this. To step, for instance, at the place under notice, from the hedge of the plantation into the adjoining pale thoroughfare, and pause amid its emptiness, for a moment, was to exchange by act of a single stride the simple absence of human companionship for an incubus of the forlorn. At this spot, on the lowering evening of a bygone winter's day, there stood a man who had entered upon the scene much in the aforesaid manner, A lighting into the road from a stile hard by, he, though by no means a chosen vessel for impressions, was temporarily influenced by some such feeling of being suddenly more alone than before he had emerged upon the highway. It could be seen by a glance at his rather finical style of dress that he did not belong to the country proper, and from his air, after a while, that though there might be a sombre beauty in this scenery, music in the breeze, and a wan procession of coaching ghosts in the sentiment of this old turnpike road. He was mainly puzzled about the way. The dead men's work that had been expended in climbing that hill, the blistered souls that had trodden it, and the tears that had wetted it, were not his concern, for fate had given him no time for any but practical things. He looked north and south, and mechanically prodded the ground with his walking stick. A closer glance at his face corroborated the testimony of his clothes. It was self-complacent, yet there was small apparent ground for such complacence. Nothing irritated it. To the eye of the magician in character, if not to the ordinary observer, the expression enthroned, there was absolute submission, to and belief in a little assortment, of forms and habitudes. At first, not a soul appeared, who could enlighten him as he desired, or seemed likely to appear that night. But presently, A slight noise of labouring wheels and the steady dig of a horse's shoe-tips became audible, and there loomed in the notch of the hill and plantation that the road formed here at the summits a carrier's van drawn by a single horse. When it got nearer, he said, with some relief to himself, "'Tis Mrs. Dollily's. This will help me." The vehicle was half full of passengers, mostly women. He held up his stick at its approach, and the women who was driving drew rein. "'I've been trying to find a short way to Little Hintock this last half hour, Mrs. Dollily.' But though I've been to Great Hintock and Hintock House half a dozen times, I am at fault about the small village. You can help me, I dare say.' She assured him that she could, that as she went to Great Hintock her van passed near it, that it was only up the lane that branched out of the lane into which she was about to turn, just ahead. Though, continued Mrs. Dolly, 'tis such a little small place. As a town gentleman, you'd need to have a candle and lantern to find it, if you don't know where it is. I wouldn't live there if they'd pay me to. Now at Great Hintock, You do see the world, a bit. He mounted and sat beside her, with his feet outside, where they were ever and anon abrushed over the horse's tail. This van, driven and owned by Mrs. Dollily, was rather a movable attachment of the roadway than an extraneous object. To those who knew it well, the old horse whose hair was of the roughness and colour of heather, whose leg joints, shoulders, and hooves were distorted by harness and drudgery from colthood. Though if all had their rights, he ought, symmetrical in outline, to have been picking the herbage of some eastern plain instead of tugging here, had trodden this road almost daily for twenty years. Even his subjection was not made congruous throughout, for the harness being too short, his tail was not drawn through the crupper so that the breaching slipped awkwardly to one side. He knew every subtle incline of the seven or eight miles of ground between Hintock and Sherton Abbas, the market town to which he journeyed, as accurately as any surveyor could have learnt it by a dumpy level. The vehicle had a square black tilt, which nodded with the motion of the wheels, and at a point in it, over the driver's head, was a hook, to which the reins were hitched at times, when they formed a catenary curve from the horse's shoulders. Somewhere about the axles was a loose chain, whose only known purpose was to clink as it went. Mrs. Dollily, having to hop up and down many times in the service of her passengers, wore especially in windy weather, short leggings under her gown for modesty's sake, and instead of a bonnet, a felt hat tied down with a handkerchief, to guard against an earache to which she was frequently subject. In the rear of the van was a glass window, which she cleaned with her pocket handkerchief every market day before starting. Looking at the van from the back, the spectator could thus see through its interior, a square piece of the same sky and landscape, that he saw without, but intruded on by the profiles of the seated passengers, who, as they rumbled onward, their lips moving and heads nodding in animated, private converse, remained in happy unconsciousness that their mannerisms and facial peculiarities were sharply defined to the public eye. This hour of coming home from market was the happy one, if not the happiest of the week for them. Snugly ensconced under the tilt, they could forget the sorrows of the world without, and survey life and recapitulate the incidents of the day with placid smiles, The passengers in the back part formed a group to themselves, and while the newcomer spoke to the proprietress, they indulged in a confidential chat about him as about other people, which the noise of the van rendered inaudible to himself and Mrs. Dolly sitting forward. "'Tis Baba Perkhom. He that's got the waxen women on his window, at the top of Abbey Street. What business can bring him from his shop out here, at this time, and not a journeyman hair cutter, but a master barber that's left off his pole, because tis not genteel. They listened to this conversation, but Mr. Percombe, though he had nodded and spoken genially, seemed indisposed to gratify the curiosity which he had aroused, and the unrestrained flow of ideas which had animated the inside of the van before his arrival was cheeked and thenceforward. Thus they rode until they turned into a half-invisible little lane, whence, as it reached the verge of an eminence, could be discerned in the dusk, about half a mile to the right, gardens and orchids sunk in a concave, and, as it were, snipped out of the woodland, From this self-contained place rose in stealthy silence tall stems of smoke, which the eye of imagination could trace downward to their root, on quiet hearthstones festooned overhead with hams and flitches. It was one of those sequestered spots outside the gates of the world, where may usually be found more meditation than action, and more passivity than meditation, where reasoning proceeds on a narrow premises, and results in inferences wildly imaginative, yet where, from time to time, no less than in other places, dramas of a grandeur, and unity truly sophoclean are enacted in the real by virtue of the concentrated passions and closely knit interdependence of the lives therein. This place was the little Hintock of the master barber's search. The coming night gradually obscured the smoke of the chimneys but the position of the sequestered little world could still be distinguished by a few faint lights winking more or less ineffectually through the leafless boughs, and the discerned songsters they bore in the form of balls and feathers at roost among them. Out of the lane followed by the van branched a yet smaller lane, at the corner of which the barber alighted Mrs. Dollily's van going on to the larger village, whose superiority to the despised smaller one as an exemplar of the world's movements was not particularly apparent in its means of approach. A very clever and learned young doctor, who they say is in league with the devil, lives in the place you be going to, not because there's anybody for him to cure, but because it is the middle of the district. The observation was flung, at the barber, by one of the women at parting as a last attempt to get at his errand that way. But he made no reply, and without further pause, the pedestrian plunged towards the umbrageous nook, and paced cautiously over the dead leaves, which nearly buried the road or street of the hamlet. As very few people except themselves, passed this way after dark. A majority of the denizens of Little Hintock deemed window curtains unnecessary. And on this account, Mr. Percombe made it his business to stop opposite the casements of each cottage with a demeanour which showed that he was endeavouring to conjecture from the persons and things he observed within, the whereabouts of somebody or other who resided there. Only the smaller dwellings interested him, one or two houses whose size, antiquity, and rambling appurtenances signified that notwithstanding their remoteness they must formerly have been if they were not still inhabited by people of a certain social standing being neglected by him entirely smells of pomace and the hiss of fermenting cider which reached him from the back quarters of the other tenements revealed the recent occupation Of some of the inhabitants, and joined with the scent of decay from the perishing leaves underfoot. Half a dozen dwellings were passed without result. The next, which stood opposite a tall tree, was in an exceptional state of radiance. The flickering brightness from inside shining up the chimney, and making a luminous mist of the emerging smoke. The interior, as seen through the window, caused him to draw up with a terminative air and watch. The house was rather large for a cottage, and the door, which opened immediately, into the living room stood ajar, so that a ribbon of light fell through the opening into the dark atmosphere without. Every now and then a moth, decrepit from the late season, would flit for a moment across the outcoming rays and disappear again into the night. In the room from which this cheerful blaze proceeded, he beheld a girl seated on a willow chair, and busily occupied by the light of the fire, which was ample and of wood, with a billhook in one hand, and a leather glove much too large for her on the other. She was making spars such as are used by Thatchers, with great rapidity. She wore a leather apron for this purpose, which was also much too large for her figure. On her left hand lay a bundle of the straight, smooth sticks called spargads, the raw material of her manufacture, on her right a heap of chips and ends, the refuse with which the fire was maintained, in front, a pile of the finished articles. To produce them, she took up each gad, looked critically at it from end to end, cut it to length, split it into four, and sharpened each of the quarters with dexterous blows, which brought it to a triangular point precisely resembling that of a bayonet. Beside her, in case she might require more light, a brass candlestick stood on a little round table, curiously formed of an old coffin stool, with a deal top nailed on, the white surface of the latter contrasting oddly with the black carved oak of the substructure. The social position of the household in the past was almost as definitively shown by the presence of this article as that of an esquire or nobleman by his old helmets or shields. It had been customary for every well-to-do villager whose tenure was by copy of court roll or in any way more permanent than that of the mere cotter, to keep a pair of these stools for the use of his own dead. But for the last generation or two, a feeling of Cubano had led to the discontinuance of the custom, and the stools were frequently made use of in the manner described. The young woman laid down the billhook for a moment and examined the palm of her right hand, which, unlike the other, was ungloved, and showed little hardness or roughness about it. The palm was red and blistering, as if this present occupation were not frequent enough with her to subdue to what it worked in. As with so many rites, hands born to manual labor, there was nothing in its fundamental shape to bear out the physiological conventionalism that gradations of birth, gentle or mean, show themselves primarily in the form of this member nothing but a cast of the die of destiny, had decided that the girl should handle the tool, and the fingers which clasped the heavy ash haft might have been skillfully guided, the pencil or swept, the string, had they only been set to do it in good time. Her face had the usual fullness of expression which is developed by a life of solitude where the eyes of a multitude beat like waves upon a countenance they seem to wear away its individuality. But in the still water of privacy every tentacle of feeling and sentiment shoots out invisible luxuriance, to be interpreted as readily as a child's look by an intruder. In years she was no more than 19 or 20, but the necessity of taking that a too early period of life had forced the provisional curves of her childhood's face to a premature finality. Thus, she had but little pretension to beauty, save in one prominent particular, her hair. Its abundance made it almost unmanageable. Its color was roughly speaking, and as seen here by firelight, brown but careful notice, or an observation by day, would have revealed that its true shade was a rare and beautiful approximation to Chestnut. On this one bright gift of time, to the particular victim of his now before us, the newcomer's eyes were fixed. Meanwhile, the fingers on his right hand mechanically played over something sticking up from his waistcoat pocket, the bows of a pair of scissors, whose polish made them feebly responsive to the light within. In her present beholder's mind, the scene formed by the girlish spa-maker compose itself into a post-Raphaelite picture of extremest quality wherein the girl's hair alone, as the focus of observation, was depicted with intensity and distinctness, and her face, shoulders, hands, and figure in general, being a blurred mass of unimportant detail, lost in haze and obscurity, he hesitated no longer but tapped at the door and entered the young woman turned at the crunch of his boots on the sanded floor and exclaiming oh Mr. Percombe, how you frightened me quite lost her colour for a moment he replied you should shut your door then you'd hear folk open it I can't she said the chimney smokes so. Mr. Percombe, you look as an unnatural out of your shop, as a canary in a thornhenge. Surely you have not come out here on my account. Yes, to have your answer about this. He touched her head with his cane and she winced. Do you agree? He continued. It is necessary that I should know at once, as the lady is soon going away, and it takes time to make up. Don't press me, it worries me. I was in hopes you had thought of no more of it. I cannot part with it, so there. Now look here, Marty, said the barber sitting down on the coffin-stool table. How much do you get for making these spars? Hush, father's upstairs awake, and he does not know that I am doing his work. Well, now tell me, said the man more softly, how much do you get? Eighteen pence, a thousand, she said reluctantly. Who are you making them for? Mr. Melbury, the timber dealer, just below here. And how many can you make in a day? In a day and half the night, three bundles. That's a thousand and a half. Two and three pence, the barber paused. Well, look here, he continued, with the remains of a calculation in his tone which calculation had been the reduction to figures of the probable monetary magnetism necessary to overpower the resistant force of her present purse and the woman's love of comeliness. Here's a sovereign, a gold sovereign, almost new. He held it out between his finger and thumb, That's as much as you'd earn in a week and a half at that rough man's work. And it's yours for just letting me snip off what you have got too much of. The girl's bosom moved a very little. Why can't the lady send to some other girl who don't value her hair? Not to me, she exclaimed. Why, Simpleton? Because yours is the exact shade of her own, and tis a shade you can't match by dying. But you are not going to refuse me now, I've come all the way from Sheraton on purpose. I say I won't sell it to you or anybody. Now listen, and he drew up a little closer beside her. The lady is very rich and won't be particular to a few shillings. So I will make advance to this on my own responsibility. I'll make the one sovereign too rather than go back empty-handed. No, no, she cried, beginning to be much agitated. You are a tempting me, Mr. Percombe, you go on like the devil to Dr. Fustus in the penny book, but I don't want your money, and won't agree, why did you come, I said, when you got me into your shop and urged me so much, that I didn't mean to sell my hair, the speaker was hot and stern. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Boy You to Sleep. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you a new episode very soon. Good night.